We are in a series on the minor prophets, minor prophets being those last 12 books in the Old Testament. And this morning we find ourselves in the book of Habakkuk, the book of Habakkuk. So as you're turning to Habakkuk, I'll just fill the time with this. A few weeks ago I mentioned, if you ever found yourself on Family Feud, I gave you some hints to help you. This time, if you ever find yourself on Wheel of Fortune, you have an eight-letter word in front of you and you suspect it might be Habakkuk, ask for the letter K. All right. Okay, so my wife just thought that was going to get awkward smiles. That, I told her it, got, it would get chuckles. All right. Anyway, yes, so good morning to you. Uh, I do want to, each week I want to provide just a bit of a reminder of the minor prophets, who they are, um, what their role was. So let's do this. Uh, before we pray and read, uh, let's quick review minor prophets. So think back, Old Testament history, think back to the call of God on Abraham. At that time, Abram, God made a covenant. As I think of covenant, I think of a promise on steroids, right? Made a promise with Abraham that he would bless him. And he would bless him by way of through Abraham would, would grow this great nation. That came to fruition, the Israelites. Also, God had promised Abraham a promised land, a land where God's people could dwell together and in his presence. That came to fruition as well. So let's fast forward the clock to the time when the Israelites are in 12 tribes and they're under King David in the land of Canaan. And life's good at that point. Then, after David comes his son Solomon to take the throne, after Solomon, then things, uh, the wheels began to fall off, so to speak, for God's people. They divided, they had a civil war divided into two kingdoms. Okay, I've done this enough, and I even do the motions, right? Just uh, muscle memory. So the two kingdoms, kingdom in the north, this was Israel and Samaria, as well as the, there were 10 tribes, kingdom in the south, in the city, uh, did I say, yeah, city of Jerusalem, this was Judah, right? And, and God had promised his people blessing if they are faithful to him, but curses, discipline, punishment, if not. And what we find is God, both kingdoms continued in disobedience to the Lord. So the Lord, uh, as promised, brought nations to punish them. I always refer to this, again, as the ABCs of exile, A being Assyria, what we know is the northern kingdom, Assyria goes, attacks uh, Samaria and Israel, conquers them, exiles them. So Israel is gone at this point. Then what's left is Judah, the B, ABC, B is Babylon. Babylon comes, attacks Jerusalem, and exiles God's people in Babylon. And then later on, Cyrus of Persia comes along. Uh, allows God's people to return to the promised land to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. So I share that to say Habakkuk, there, it's important to understand our history as we enter into Habakkuk. Because the minor prophets during this whole time period of the, the two kingdoms, the divided kingdoms in the north and the south, the prophets are the mouthpiece of the Lord speaking to God's people. And in particular, Habakkuk, this book was written after Assyria had already conquered Israel in the north, but before Babylon comes to conquer Judah 
in the south. So at this point in time, when Habakkuk is writing, Babylon is increasing in strength, but the problem is Judah, God's people, are continuing in their wickedness, especially oppression, idolatry, injustice, violence. And so that's where we pick up the story in Habakkuk. The other thing that's interesting about Habakkuk as a prophet is it's different than all the other minor prophets in that it's a dialogue back and forth between God and Habakkuk. And so that's what we will find this morning as we begin to read. But uh, before we read, let me pray for our time. And my prayer this morning is out of uh, Philippians chapter 1. We'll take one of Paul's prayers and make it our own. Father, it is our prayer that our love would abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that we may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And amen. So I am in Habakkuk chapter 1. We'll read uh, verses 1 through 2-4. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth and seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome, their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress. For they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. Verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. For you are, a, for you are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallow up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler, he brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them into the dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them, he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at the watchpost and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. 
For still the vision awaits at its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. And together the grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. So I want to begin just by dumping in the deep end of the pool right now with this question, when did life hit you really hard? And I'm talking about the moments or the seasons in our life where we feel the weight of a fallen world and potentially the crushing weight of a fallen world. When I ask this question, we probably break down to three categories. One category of people would be probably the young. Maybe you haven't felt the crushing weight of a fallen world, and that's good. But then there's another category of you who are with us this morning or online, and and you're in the midst of it right now. And then there's others that we look back at moments and seasons and, and, and recognize just those seasons of deep and profound struggle. And these moments of sea- and seasons are often moments and seasons of loss, right? In a fallen world, there is much loss. Lose jobs or potentially opportunities that we have our hearts set on that don't, don't come to fruition and are so disappointing. We lose relationships. We lose loved ones. We lose our health. The list could go on. We lose so much in a fallen world. And for the Christian, it can be really tough as we look around in our seasons of struggle and look at non-Christians around us that seem to be just fine. If I can quote from one of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 73, it's Asaph when he looks around at the wicked and he says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They're always at ease and they increase in riches. It doesn't seem right in God's world. And these losses and these struggles, they don't always seem right. They don't always seem fair. And if we could play God for a day, we'd probably make different decisions. At least that's how we think. And these deep struggles, with this comes deep questions. Why, God? Why are you doing this? Why are you allowing this? And these questions aren't always with a raised fist. Like, why, God, exclamation point. At times, these are questions of deep lament. Why, God, question mark. Where are you right now, question mark. So what do you do in these seasons of lament, these dark nights of the soul? My hope is that after this morning, you'll read the book of Habakkuk because we need this book. Often the question is, why did God allow certain books in the Bible? We need the book of Habakkuk. And the honest dialogue between Habakkuk and God when he's asking why and what seems to be, in Habakkuk's mind, God's indifference to the world around Habakkuk. But God has an answer. And oftentimes in Hebrew literature, 
The point of the story is at the very center. And in Habakkuk, we find the point in the very center. It's Habakkuk 2.4. It's the last verse that I read. And the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. And that's what I want to explore this morning. What does it mean that the righteous shall live by faith? And again, Habakkuk is a little different than the other minor prophets in that uh, there's really, a, it's a series of question and answers, a dialogue between Habakkuk and God. And essentially, it's chapter one is Habakkuk answer, asked a question. It, it's a question slash complaint. And then God answers, and that blows Habakkuk's mind. So then it follows up with the second question, and then you have chapter two with God giving the longer answer, and then that leads to chapter three, Habakkuk's prayer in light of God's answer. So that's our flow for this morning. So let's begin with this, chapter 1-1, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. So this is divine revelation. And then we have the first question and answer series in, in uh, chapter 1, verses 2 through 11. And so let's begin by looking first at Habakkuk's question slash complaint in verses 2 through 4. He says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Now notice... Habakkuk is crying out, O Lord. Okay, O Lord is not the generic name for God. O Lord is the covenant name for God. In other words, Habakkuk's crying out to a God he knows is personal, a covenant-keeping God, one who has established his people as his treasured possession. But if you notice, this reads like a lament psalm. Like example of lament psalm, Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Or Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Okay, so this, what we have in Habakkuk, this is his lament psalm, so to speak. And, and why does God allow lament psalms in the Bible? It's because we need them. We are often, in a fallen world, a people of lament. Verse 3, this is his lament. Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Idly, I-D-L-Y, like slow to respond, indifference. He goes on, destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise. So Habakkuk is crying out to the Lord, violence, there's violence all around, do you see it? And part of this, uh, by the way, biblical scholars, pastors debate on, is Habakkuk referring to the Assyrians and their violence to God's people? Or is Habakkuk referring to his own people in Jerusalem, the leaders of Judah who were wicked and oppressive, were not following God? You know, there's debate about that. At the end of the day, it's not what's really important except this, what Habakkuk is crying out about. Do you see all this evil, Lord? Why do you idly look at wrong? He's asking, complaining, are you slow to respond? Are you indifferent? Are you unconcerned? And my guess is Habakkuk is not the only person in the world that has ever asked the question, why? Why, God? 
How can a a good God allow evil and suffering in the world? And do you see the violence in the world? And God has an answer, and we'll get to it. Verse 4, Habakkuk says, So the law is paralyzed, meaning it's being ignored. And justice never goes forth from the wicked, or, or for the wicked, surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Okay, let's look at Habakkuk's assumptions throughout this, this uh, section. Verse 2, his assumptions, Habakkuk is praying, but God, you're not hearing or saving. No, that's actually not true, we'll find. Verse 3, why do you idly look at wrong? Hmm? That's not true either. God is not idly looking at wrong. Verse 4, justice never goes forth. That's not true. And by the way, I have a suspicion on this one. Uh, we do not, scholars don't know much about uh, the prophet of Habakkuk, but my guess is um, he is not married because he should have learned you don't ever get away with always and never statements. Right? He says justice never goes forth. But that, we will find, is not true. From Habakkuk's vantage point, he says the wicked surround the righteous. That's what Habakkuk sees. But what's really true? And this is one of my favorite stories in the Bible that comes to my mind on this one. I love the story of 2 Kings chapter 6. To make a long and great story really short... Elisha and his servant is surrounded by horses and chariots of an enemy army. Okay, they're surrounded. They wake up one morning and there's this encampment. So Elisha's servant is basically like, uh, what do we do now? And here's Elisha's response. Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. I'm sure Elisha looked around and be like, there's two of us. Or Elisha's servant. Um, Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Such a powerful picture. Habakkuk is like Elisha's servant. He doesn't see the whole picture yet. It's a good reminder for us. We don't have the full picture yet. But the Lord is going to broaden Habakkuk's vision and hopefully ours as well this morning. So what's the Lord's answer to Habakkuk's first complaint? It's uh, verses 5 through 11. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Okay, so Habakkuk has been assuming that God is sitting by idle, and God's revealing him, no, I have a plan, and I'm actually already at work. And then, uh, so God's essentially saying, like, I'm on it. And then, and by the way, Habakkuk, you should probably sit down for this one, because what God's about to tell him is going to blow his mind, Right? Verse 6, for behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, otherwise known as Babylon. And then in verses 6 through 11, the Lord basically describes uh, the Babylonians as, I'll just summarize, bitter and hasty. They're dreaded and fearsome. 
God describes them as leopards, wolves, and eagles. What do they all have in common? They are fast, they are fierce, and they will hurt you. He goes on. Uh, they're violent. They scoff and laugh. Uh, their, their might is their God. You know, that's how God is describing Babylon. So if Habakkuk's wondering if God sees Babylon clearly, he does. And I can only imagine... So Habakkuk begins, he's a little shocked and perplexed at first because he's like, God, why do, you, why do you allow violence all around? And then God answers, actually what I'm going to do is send Babylon. Now Habakkuk is really shocked and perplexed. And this brings his second complaint, his, the second Q&A between Habakkuk and God. And we find this in chapters 1, verses, uh, verse 12 throughout chapter 2. So, in verses 1, 12 through 17, is Habakkuk's second complaint. Now, Habakkuk builds up to his complaint, but he begins with some, actually some pretty sound theology. Look at verses 12 and 13. He says, are you from everlasting? Yes, he understands that God is an eternal God. O Lord my God, again, yes, uh, he recognizes the covenant name of God, so yes, he's a personal God, Habakkuk continues, my holy one, so yes, Habakkuk understands God's perfectly holy, Habakkuk continues, he says, we shall not die, so Habakkuk seems to trust that there is a future for God's people, Habakkuk continues, he says, O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. So Habakkuk has an understanding of that God has a sovereign plan in using Babylon here. Then look at 13a, or the first part of 13. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. So again, Habakkuk understands that God in his holiness cannot tolerate sin and evil. So, so far, so good. Good theology. But then here's the disconnect. Verse 13. If all this is true, Habakkuk says, Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallow up the man more righteous than he? This is the heart of the matter for Habakkuk. Why do you let the wicked succeed while the righteous struggle? And do you ever wrestle with this tension? Lord, you're a personal God. We're your people. You're holy. You hate evil. But they're acting wickedly. I'm seeking to act righteously. Why do you bless them? And why does it feel like you curse me? If we could fill in the blank, and I'm going to have you say this out loud, it's just not, just not fair. Times life doesn't feel fair, right? We can all agree on that. And then further, there's a bit of a challenge to God in verse 14. Habakkuk says, You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. Habakkuk's point is, kind of like the fish or things that crawl on the ground, they seem to have no ruler, go whatever direction they want to go in and do what they want to do. What Habakkuk is referring to is that they have no authority over them. The, the wicked Babylonians... And what they do is they continue to cruelly conquer and oppress 
And he says, mercilessly kill. And again, this isn't just in Habakkuk's day, right? We look around the world, we see this. Think about our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ around the world, who, who this, this is very real for them, very real. And then verses 4 and 5, 4 specifically. Behold, says the Lord. Now, key word in the Bible, when you hear the word behold, it's God getting our attention, about to say something really important. And again, I mentioned earlier in Hebrew literature, the center at times of a book is the heart of what it's about. And we see here, um, he says, behold, his, meaning Babylon's soul is puffed up. In other words, Babylon trusts in itself, and Babylon, they trust in themselves. But here's the point. But the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by his faith. The Hebrew word for faith here, it's a trust that perseveres. And for Habakkuk and for us, this should be a, oh, moment. The righteous live by faith. Because yes, Habakkuk, you see clearly. You see that it's a dark world. You see it. But you have to trust that I'm in control here and that I actually have a plan. This verse is quoted three times in the New Testament in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, Galatians 3, 11 through 14, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38. It's quoted for three reasons. Because of how significant it is, what is the Christian life? It is living by faith, and it's not a blind faith. It is a real faith in a real God who has acted in the past. In other words, our Christian faith is not just a faith of ideas, is it? It's a faith built on God's actions. And we'll continue to see that in verses 6 through 20. God gives more reasons for assurance that the righteous can live by their faith, can live by trust. Because God reveals what's going to happen to the wicked with five woes. Now again, when we think woe, think opposite of beatitude. Beatitudes, blessed are those. Woes are woe to those, and woe is never good. So I want to summarize these woes with some key words within this section but also dig out a couple of nuggets of gold within that are embedded in these woes. And when I do, just to say this, that within these woes, we will hear things that God despises. And it is a good reminder for us to love what God loves, but to hate what God hates and seek to flee in our sinfulness from these things that God despises. So with that... I'll summarize quickly, verses 6 through 8. Woe to those who plunder other nations, including my people, because you're going to get plundered. Verses 9 through 11. Woe to those who pursue evil gain at the expense of others. Verses 12 through 14. Woe to those who seek to spread their own glory. But here's the catch. But it's a twisted and a perverted glory. It's the glory of man, the glory that man tries to set himself above God. And we see this glory, the way they present it, 
talks about how they're building cities through the blood of man and violence of the earth. Twice that phrase is mentioned. And here's some gold. God's essentially saying, you seek to fill the earth, Babylon, with your own glory? Verse 14, but the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That is a promise for us to cling to. And verses 15 through 17, woe to those who pursue shameful deeds and bring shame on others. And, and what's referenced here is basically sexual immorality. Then verses 18 through 20, woe to you who worship your pathetic silent idols. There's no life in them. They're merely objects of wood and stone. And here's another, uh, another piece of gold. Verse 20, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. And here's the contrast. God's saying, your idols are dead. They are lifeless. They are silent. But what about the living Lord of the universe? He is in his holy temple. And the only proper response to his presence and his future judgment is silence. Remember Habakkuk's question, why are you idle, Lord, with wickedness? Why do you remain silent when the wicked swallow up the righteous? What's God's answer? He goes, oh no. No, I'm not idle. I'm not indifferent. The day is coming when the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, which means completely, and there will be a silence. So how can we have further confidence to live by faith? Let's look at Habakkuk's prayer, chapter 3. Verse 2, Habakkuk says, O Lord, I've heard the report of you. In other words, stories have been passed down. And your work, O Lord, do I fear. Notice the shift. What did Habakkuk fear in the beginning? He feared his circumstances and the violence all around him. Now his fear is focused and centered on the Lord. He is in awe of his powerful God. He says, in the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. In other words, he's saying, God, you've acted so powerfully in the past for your people. Please come, please act powerfully right now. And in your judgment... In your wrath, please remember mercy. Remember mercy for your people. And then we have in verses 3 through 15, there's multiple references to how God has acted powerfully in the past for his people. And and the references at times have to do with the Exodus. God delivered his people from Egypt. Has to do with Mount Sinai. God powerfully revealed uh, revealed himself to his people and gave them the law. And also uh, some of the events of the conquest under Joshua when they were moving into the promised land in the midst of all these wicked nations. So these are some of the references in 3 through 15. And I thought what I would do, since this is actually written as a song, verses 3 through 15, I thought I would just sing this for you. Yeah, I am totally joking. Just wanted to make sure you're still with me.
But I am going to read it. And as I read it, here's what I want you to do. Um, unless, you're like, unless you've really done your homework, you're a great Bible scholar, there's some of the things as I read that uh, places uh, that you, you may not be aware of, that's okay. I just want us to get the heart of the references of how God has powerfully acted in the past. And also this, as I read, I want us to ask the question, is this God described here powerful enough for us to rest our faith in him? That's the question. So, 3, verses 3 through 15, and I'm going to seek to read fast. Oh, Lord. Actually, let's start with verse 3, not 2. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his, uh, from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers? Or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place, and the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You thrust the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, lying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. So, yes, I think God is powerful enough for the righteous to live by faith in him. And throughout scripture, we will see the scriptures pointing back. How, if you ask Old Testament believers, how do you have faith in God? They'll point back at the Exodus when God delivered. Right, and for us, we we have the vantage point. We can look back at the Exodus as well, but we look back at the cross where God powerfully acted and delivered. So as we come to the end, verses 16 through 19, Habakkuk is in a different place. Verse 16, I hear and my body trembles. My lip quivers at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the, the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flocks be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength, he makes my feet like the deer's, he makes me tread on my high places." 
Habakkuk has a better understanding of what it means to live by faith. In the beginning, it was, Lord, why? Why are you idle? And now in 3.16, he's essentially saying, Lord, I'm a mess, but I will quietly wait. And though I am stripped bare, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God is the Lord. He is my strength. For Habakkuk, fear has turned into faith. And you know what? This probably didn't take place in just a 30-minute like sermon. Sometimes this takes a while for our laments to grow from why, O oh Lord, and maybe even maturity is, oh, how long, O oh Lord? Because you're going to make things right, but how long until you make things right? So um, do you remember, don't get mad at me when I say this, uh, do you remember the various instruction books called, you know, Blank for Dummies? Um, Habakkuk, in a sense, for me, is, is living by faith for dummies. I need the book of Habakkuk. And, and what do we learn through this book? I'm going to give you one no and a lot of yeses. No, God is not idle with his people. He sees clearly. He sees everything clearly. And he sees all of our lives clearly. And yes, God is an eternal God, an everlasting God, who is sovereign over the nations, and he is sovereign over our lives, and he has a plan. And at the heart of his plan is his covenant people. God has promised that he will be faithful to his people. And yes, God is holy, and he has ordained the time, he has appointed the time when he will bring judgment. And yes, the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. And yes, in God's wrath, he will remember mercy. That is such a key phrase in Habakkuk. Because God did provide mercy by way of the cross. Right, so if we have the question, God, are you powerful enough for what I'm going through right now? Well, do you remember the Exodus? God, do you care enough? Are you loving enough for what I'm going through right now? Well, how about the cross? His son for you. His beloved son for you. So what's true that will carry us through? That's really the question, right? What's true that will carry us through? We have a table set before us. Think of the book of Hebrews as it defines faith. It says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The assurance, faith is the assurance of things that are hoped for. And as we come to this table, what do we see? We see assurance. God has come powerfully in the past Jesus' body and his blood for us on the cross. And this, this is just a taste of what awaits us in the glorious kingdom of God, of the new heavens and the new earth. And what do we do until then? We pray, and at times it is prayers of lamentation. And we wait, 
And if I can quote Habakkuk, and we rejoice in the Lord and take joy in the God of our salvation. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, gave it to his disciples, and he said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in memory of me. In the same way, he took the cup. And after giving thanks, giving this to his disciples, he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And the apostle Paul adds, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. And what are we declaring? That God has been faithful in the past. He is faithful in the present. He will be faithful in the future. And the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you meet us at this table in a way that strengthens our faith, grows us in the knowledge of your glorious grace and give us a hope that sustains us. We pray that you take this bread and this juice, set it apart in such a way that you, we know that you are with us. Pray that you would meet with us powerfully, that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.